Wow. Good morning. Great to be with you. Please uh, grab your Bible and uh, turn with me to uh, Exodus chapter 8. It's uh, always fun to preach at Wellspring. It's, you know, like being in a home game, um, and, and you got a home field advantage when you're, when you're doing that. So it's uh, good to be here. So Exodus chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, you should find some in one of the seats in front of you, um, or you're welcome to follow along on a Bible app uh, if, if that works for you as well. Uh, Exodus chapter 8. As you're turning there, I want to do a bit of a survey and get some audience participation. And so if you're new or if you're an introvert like me, take a deep breath. It's all good. We're just going to put up our hands and, and vote on something here. Um, so we'll start with this. We'll put this image up on the screen. Uh, Starbucks versus Tim Hortons. Okay. Who are the Starbucks people in the room? All right. Hands down. Who are the Tim Hortons people in the room? Okay, wow, that's interesting. All right, we'll go to the next one. What about this? Coke and Pepsi. Who are the Coca-Cola fans? My daughter's going for both. Okay, Pepsi. Okay. All right, let's go again. A Mac versus PC. Who are the Mac people? I see that hand. And PC? I was forced to switch to PC in the last year and a half. It was the hardest part of the transition for my job. All right, here's the next one. Um, iPhone versus Galaxy, Android. I don't even know what, how, what do you say that. Who are the iPhone people? You can see where my, wow, look at that, Shane. Android? Wow, okay, that's still pretty good. And I'm gonna alienate a few people on this one, but LeBron versus Jordan. Who is Le- LeBron, greatest of all time? Come on, Navin. Come on, Navin. Michael Jordan, thank you. The correct answers, by the way, were uh, Starbucks, Coke, Apple, iPhone, and Michael Jordan. So there you go. All right, that's fun. Let's uh, dig into the scriptures. And, and uh, if you've been with us, we've been looking at the account of of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And, and if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, We've been talking about this freedom that God wants to bring in their lives. And so God looked upon the people in Israel who were enslaved for hundreds of years. He showed compassion. He calls Moses to be the one to to deliver them. Moses isn't so sure about that. He's got some excuses. He thinks he's maybe the wrong guy for the job. And so that's about Exodus chapter 3 and 4. And finally, he and his brother Aaron go, and and they go to Pharaoh and start to demand that Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. Now, Pharaoh doesn't know God, and Pharaoh's arrogant, and Pharaoh has a bit of a hard heart, and so he thinks that he's actually a competitor with God on this one. He thinks that he can compete, and and God is going to show him, and has been showing him, through a series of plagues, the greatness of his power and his name over Pharaoh, over the Egyptian gods, and over everything. And so last week, we looked at the first three plagues, the, the plague of the Nile turning into blood, where all the fish died and nobody could drink the water. Then God brought a plague of frogs, if you remember, and they wreaked havoc across the land. And then the third plague was when God had Aaron strike the dust of the land with his staff, which brought about a plague of gnats upon the land. And that caused all sorts of chaos. Yet despite the chaos, despite the, the, the craziness that was happening through these plagues, due to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, he would not listen. And he would not submit. And he would not let the people go. 
And so that brings us to Exodus chapter 8, verse uh, 20, where we're going to pick up the story, and we're going to try to cover a fair bit of ground here this morning and get to the end of plague number 9. But we're going to see God start to turn up the heat now, turn up the intensity a little bit more on Pharaoh to show him who he truly is. Now, before we dig into this, I want to take us to Exodus chapter 9, which is kind of the key section of verses that... uh, that really show us the point of our message this morning. So notice in Exodus 9, verses 13 through 16, the Lord says to Moses, get up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh, tell him this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they might worship me. Verse 14, for this time, I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me on the whole earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, verse 16, here's the key verse. I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. Why is that important? It demonstrates for us today an important thing about who God is and what he's attempting to communicate. See, God wants Pharaoh to know that he has no rivals, that God has no rivals, that, that the power of God and the name of God is far greater than anyone or anything in this world. Do you believe that? And so if I give you my sermons in a sentence right there, God has no rivals. God has no rivals. There is no one like our God. None can compare. No person or thing can come anywhere close to the greatness of who God is and what he's able to do. And this morning, as we walk through the next few plagues, we're going to see that on display, the greatness of God's name where where we do that. And as we look at it, I want us to consider the implications. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you, for me, that there, there is a God who has no rival? So let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to work quickly through a few chapters here together and see the God who has no rivals. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the great and awesome God. There is no greater name than your name, Jesus. And I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and ultimately through your son, Jesus. And I thank you for the privilege to gather together in your name, Jesus, and to worship you. And we simply want to hear you speak to us right now. Lord, this isn't about me or anyone else here today. It's about you. And we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to fill us to speak to us, to make plain to us the things that you've said, that we would be different, that we would be transformed, that we would be faithful to you. Lead us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God has no rivals. Let me show you that here through these plagues. And we'll start in uh, Exodus chapter 8 and verse 20 with plague number 4. And this is how it starts. God says to Moses, he says, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh, When you see him going out to the water, tell him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. So God is again sending Moses to Pharaoh to demand freedom for his people. Verse 21, but if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies and so will the land where they live. Now, We had a bit of a taste of summer um, recently, and I'm so looking forward to it as well later. One of the things I don't enjoy about summer is, has this ever happened to you? You're walking down the sidewalk, and you walk into this 
this swarm of these tiny little black bugs. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody nod your head if you know what I'm talking about. Those things are disgusting, okay? So, so keep that in mind, and notice what's happening here. God is demanding freedom from his people, and he's saying to Pharaoh, if you don't give, grant that request, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a swarm of flies like you've never seen into the land, and we're not told what kind of flies, or if they're house flies or mosquitoes. We're just told that they're flies, but there's going to be a swarm of them everywhere. And, and here is where we start to see the unmatched greatness of God. Verse 24, look. And the Lord did this. The Lord did this. The creator of everything takes a swarm, a thick swarm of flies, went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarm of flies. God shows his power here by sending a swarm of flying insects into the land to devastate this land. Now surely, Pharaoh, after the first three and now this, would get it, right? Surely he would change his mind and say, fine, go. Who wants flies around? It's disgusting. There's a lot of them. But notice what happens instead. Verses 25 through 31, Pharaoh calls Moses back in and he begs him to, and to appeal to God on his behalf. He tries to negotiate a bit and he finally sort of agrees reluctantly to let them go. But then after Moses appeals to God and God removes all the flies, it says that Pharaoh changes his mind again. Despite the Nile turning to blood, despite the land of Egypt being overrun by frogs and gnats and now swarms of flies, Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge the superiority of God. And in verse 32 it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let people have a pet at home right now. This is going to get real personal right now, okay? Just so you know, the word plague here refers to disease or pestilence or pandemic of sickness that causes widespread death, in this case, against the livestock of the Egyptian people. So we're talking cows and donkeys and herds and the flocks of sheep that God is going to bring this sickness upon. Now, interestingly, for the Egyptians, livestock was a very big deal to them. They had Egyptian gods that were all focused around livestock. The god Aptis took the form of a sacred bull, for example. Um, The god Ra was the form of a calf. There was these uh, cows of uh, Hathan, I think you say it, which were a really big deal for the Egyptian gods. And so God is saying, hey, I'm going to show you that I have no rivals. I'm going to show you the greatness of my power and my name throughout the earth. And if you don't let my people go, I'm going to bring a plague of death upon the animals that you hold so sacred. And look at verse 6. It says, then the Lord did this the next day. And all the Egyptian livestock died, but none among the Israelite livestock died. God's unmatched power on display surely would have been enough to convince Pharaoh. But once again, verse 7, Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that not a single one of the Israelite livestock was dead, but Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the people go. Which takes us to plague number 6. Look at verses 8 through 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of furnace soot, and Moses is to throw it towards heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land of Egypt. I was uh, considering bringing some um, ashes from my fireplace today and throwing it into the uh, crowd like this. 
but not every idea is a good idea. And I, I figured Shane wouldn't really appreciate that or the cleaning staff. So we'll have to imagine this one, okay? I'm not going to show it to you, but notice what God is saying. He's saying, Moses, go to the, go to the furnace, the brick-making furnace, which is, as one commentator calls, poetic justice in this moment. All they've been slaving away, making bricks. He says, I want you to go into that furnace and grab some soot, and I want you to throw it into the air. And as it comes down and lands on people, it's going to create festering boils on the people and the animals of Egypt. And that word boils is talking about hot skin sores. I didn't have a picture, which I was going to put up, so be thankful for that, all right? But think about Job chapter 2, where Job has those sores. Remember that story? And he's, he takes pottery, and he's like scraping at them. It's, it's that type of thing right now. Um, a localized eruption of the dermis is what I read from the infection of the skin gland. Listen to this. Having a hard central core and forming pus. You're like, wow, that is too much information right now. There's some people who love like that, and that includes my wife. All right? So, but back to the story. Verse 19. God, uh, he got instruction to do these things. And verse 19, sorry, I'm not verse 19. So they took, verse 10, they took furnace soot and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it towards heaven, and it became festering boils on the people and animals. So this happens. The boils start coming upon them. And Moses does what God has instructed him to do. And again, in, in verse 11, we see the power of God on display. Because the magicians, it says, could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For these boils were on the magicians as well as all the, as all the Egyptians. So even the magicians who had the power to do some crazy things, they couldn't stand against God's power. Surely this would be enough to get Pharaoh's attention and to convince him. But notice verse 12 his heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. Which leads us to plague number seven. And things are starting to ramp up here now. Look with me at verses 17 through 18 and the, Moses, and the message that, that God sends Moses to deliver. He says, You are still acting arrogantly against my people and not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time I will rain down the worst hail you've ever seen in Egypt, from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and is not brought inside will die because when the hail falls upon them. So what's, what's the plague? It's, it's a plague of giant hail. Now, I looked up the Guinness World Record on the size of hail, and I don't know if this is exactly it, but it's pretty close. 2010, South Dakota, an eight-inch chunk of hail Stones were falling upon uh, that place in particular, weighing two pounds. Can you imagine that kind of hail that's falling? Hail in, in, the, in the scriptures was often associated with God's judgment. And interestingly, there was also another uh, false god, the god of Seth, called Seth, who was responsible for apparently the wind and the storms. And so in this case, we're not told the size of the hail. We're not told how big it was or but we're told it was big enough that, that when this hail fell, if people were not inside, if animals were not inside, things were going to die. And we're seeing the unmatched power of God on display. Look at verse 23. So Moses stretched out his hand, stretched out his staff towards heaven, 
And the Lord sent thunder and hail. Lightning struck the land. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, verse 25, the hail struck down everything in the field, both people and animals. The hail beat down every plant in the field and shattered every tree in the field. The unmatched power of God on display. The God who has no rivals. And, and surely this would be enough, again, to convince um, Pharaoh of who God is. But notice verse 27. He starts to maybe start seeing that he's wrong. He confesses his guilt. But in the remaining parts of, of chapter 9, he starts to change his mind again. And by the time you get to verse 34, when Pharaoh saw the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, He sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go as the Lord had said through Moses. Once again, he's not willing to bend the knee to God in this way, which leads us to plague number eight. And check out this one. I mentioned earlier that the Egyptians had a bunch of uh, gods, lowercase g gods, there was a lot of them, and including, including a lot that were devoted to the fields because that was an important thing. They had a god of the crops. They had a god of grain. And they even had a god who was responsible for protecting them against pests in the field. So check out what God does next here in chapter 10, verse 3. So Aaron, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, God of the Hebrews says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let my people go, then tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will eat the remainder left to you that escaped the hail. They'll eat every tree you've been growing. They'll fill your houses and your officials' houses and the houses of the Egyptians, something your fathers and grandfathers never saw since the time they occupied the land until today. And then they turned and left Pharaoh's presence. Can you imagine this one? Giant locusts, maybe two inches long, consuming the land um, of Egypt and all the plants and the trees that, that have remained. This is the power of God on display. Look at verse 12 then. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land and the locusts will come up over it and eat every plant in the field, everything that the hill left. So, verse 13, Moses struck, stretched out his staff over the land and the Lord sent an east wind over the land all through the day and through the night. And by morning, the east wind had brought in the locusts. And imagine this, the locusts went up over the entire land and settled on the whole territory. Never before have there been such a large number of locusts and never will there be again. They covered the surface of the land so that the land was black. And they consumed all the plants of the ground and the fruit of the trees and that the hail had left. Nothing green was left on the trees or the plants in the field throughout the land of Egypt. It's disgusting. Locusts everywhere. Surely... Pharaoh will change his mind. And it looks like he has a bit of a change of heart here. If you look at verse 19, um, he, 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 he calls, he, he goes to Moses. He says, hey, get rid of these things. I'm sorry. And in verse 19, God changes the wind back the other way and blows them off 
back into the Red Sea so that not even a single locust was left. And here we see again the greatness of God on display. The God who controls the winds, who can cause an east wind and a west wind to move locusts around. The God who would drive them into the Red Sea, perhaps even a preview of what's to come for the Egyptian army. But once again, Pharaoh's heart, verse 20, was hardened. And he refused to acknowledge this God who has no rivals. He refused to let the people go, which leads us to the ninth plague, which we are going to finish on this morning. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven now, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were, yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. What's happening here? Well, the Egyptians revered the sun. The, the, the sun was a big deal, and they had the god of the sun called Re, and, and he was the sun god throughout all the history of, of, of Egypt. And even the Pharaoh himself was often referred to as the son of Re. They, they revered the sun. And God said, I want to show you who I am. No more sun, no more light. We're going complete darkness for three days to the point that you can't even see the person beside you. That's how dark it is right now. And it says that the people couldn't even move because of the darkness. But sadly, verse 27, Pharaoh's heart remained hard and he was unwilling to let them go. Time after time after time after time after time, God is showing his power. God is showing the greatness of his name to Pharaoh and to the people. And he refuses to acknowledge this God who has no rival. So what do we do with this then? What do we do with this? this what are the implications for us today as we look at this God who, who is so great in power and so great in glory overall? What do we do with that? this morning. I want to give us a few points of application to consider for, for you and for me today as we think about the God who has no rivals. And first is this, it's the invitation to savor the unmatched greatness of God. To savor the unmatched greatness of God, to stop and to stare and to like we did this morning, sing even about the greatness of our God. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you truly just sat before God and savored his greatness? There's no guilt or shame on that question. It's just, it's just a question. But when was the last time you, you put down your phone and you put down your streaming apps and you put down the busyness of life and you simply sat before God and, and savored his greatness? See, that's the invitation that God gives us today and every day as we ponder this God who has no rivals to simply savor the greatness of God. When I started working at Scott Mission about a year and a half ago, it was the first time in my life I'd ever worked downtown. And I know some people worked downtown for years. This was my first time. And so I remember the first few months going downtown and I was like struck with the city. I'd be wandering around up from Union Station or from the parking garage, just like 
amazed with this city. Like, look at these buildings. Look at these neighborhoods. Look at these weird people that are walking by me. Like, this, is, this place is unbelievable. And I, I come home and I tell Adrian, this is such a great city. And then 18 months later, when I leave work, I love work. But when I leave work, I'm like, how do I get out of here as soon as possible? What's the quickest way to the gardener so I can get home? Right? The, the awe of the city has started to wear off. Does, does that make sense? And I think it reminds me that familiarity can breed complacency. That when you look at a sunset every single day, maybe you start to lose the awe and the wonder of that. When you see the mountains over and over again, if you live in Western Canada, you maybe you stop noticing. And unfortunately, it can happen with God in our lives at times too, right? We become so familiar with him that we start to lose the awe and the wonder. I love what one author said about this. He says, and he's talking to people in ministry, but, but he, it applies to all of us. He says, this is where the problem lies. He says, I'm convinced that many of us live and do ministry day after day without any awe whatsoever. We live days, maybe even weeks, without wonder and amazement, even in gospel ministry. What should stun us doesn't stun us anymore. What should leave us in silent, amazed worship has become so familiar, it barely gets our attention and the clatter of all the other things in ministry that command our attention. We don't notice the glory displayed all around us that points us to the one glory that is truly glorious, the glory of God. Psalm 33 verse 8 says, Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of God. And God's inviting us this morning to stand in awe of him again and to say, God, would you give me a fresh awe and wonder over your greatness and over your glory? Would you show me again your beauty? Would you help me stand in awe and savor the greatness of your name? And I want to encourage you, as I encourage myself this week, to be intentional about that, to find a time, to schedule a time, to make a time this week to simply turn it off, to step back, and to sit before our God. Turn on a song of worship that declares the greatness of his name. Open your Bible and meditate on the Psalms that speak over and over about how amazing God is. Meditate on the scriptures that tell story after story of the amazing things that Jesus has done and allow the greatness of God's name to overwhelm you. That's what it's about. It's an invitation to savor the greatness of God. Here's the second thing I want us to see in this passage And we see this in a negative way through Pharaoh. It's this, to settle for nothing except a heart of surrender and unconditional obedience. Settle for nothing except a heart of surrender and unconditional obedience. If you go back into this passage, and I won't walk you through it all again, but there's a pattern that emerges with Pharaoh throughout these conversations. I don't know if you saw it there, but as as Moses and Aaron go to, to him and demand freedom as God had told them to do, Even though Pharaoh agrees at times, he does so with conditions. Three times, in fact. Notice in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 20, right before the plague of flies, he summons Moses and Aaron and he says, Go sacrifice to God. You can go within the country. So you can you can go and worship God, but you gotta stay within the land of Egypt. And that wasn't what God was asking. He said, Let my people go. And here's Pharaoh trying to negotiate. Happens again with the eighth plague in chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, where Moses are brought back in by Pharaoh. And and 
Pharaoh says, go worship the Lord your God. And Pharaoh says, but exactly who's going to be going here? Moses replies, we're going to go with our young, with our old, with our sons, with our daughters, with our flocks, with our herds, because we must hold the festival. In verse 10, in chapter 10, Pharaoh says to him, the Lord would have to be with you if I'd ever let you and your families go. Look out, you're heading for trouble. Now just go, just the able-bodied men, and worship the Lord, since that's what you want. So in that case, he said, you can go, but just just the able-bodied men. He's negotiating. He's placing conditions upon God in this case. And then the third time, right before, or during the ninth plague, he calls them in, chapter 10, verse 24. Go worship the Lord. Even your families may go, but only your flocks and your herds must stay behind. What's happening here? Over and over again, Pharaoh isn't getting it. He's trying to negotiate with God. He's trying to put conditions on his obedience. It made me think about um, a few years ago when we bought our van. Um, I remember, uh, I, I saw the van, I knew what I wanted. We went down to the dealership on a Saturday morning. The kids were young, it was all very strategic. And I walked into the dealership and I brought the kids in with me and I knew exactly what I wanted to pay. And the, the sales guy and I had a standoff for like four and a half hours. And I just let the kids go crazy as part of the, the game here. I'm like, I'm not leaving until I get my price. And he's like, I can't do it. And so we, we, we just, we, and I won, and I got my price. But here's the point. That's not how it works with God, right? When the God of the universe says, here's my word to you, he's not looking to negotiate. He's not looking for conditions. He's not looking for a conditional. And sometimes we do this, right? God, I'll listen, but here are my terms. Here's how far I'm willing to go in this way. And I wonder this morning, I've asked myself this question already, are there areas in our lives where God is trying to speak to us and we're willing to listen, but only so far? Where you're saying, God, yeah, I can do that, but only to hear. And maybe not all the way. And and let's be honest, there's times in our lives when what God asks us to do is hard. Or it doesn't make sense. Or it's not what we feel. God, you want me to forgive? You want me to reconcile? You want me to trust? You want me to sacrifice? I don't know how far I can go on that one. But what God asks us to do, he gives us the grace to do as well and the strength to do. And God knows what's best and his word is always right and true and what he asks, he does in love towards us as his children. And what he's looking for is a heart of surrender. A heart of of surrender that leads to full and joyful obedience to our God. I love this story in Luke chapter 5 where Simon Peter has been fishing all night and and Jesus says, put your net on the other side. And and Luke 5, 5, he said, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but if you say so, I'll let down my net. At your word, another translation says, I will do what you've asked of me. And this morning, it's a reminder that what God of the universe, the God who has no rivals, the greatness of our God, when he gives us a word, when he asks us to do, he's looking for a heart of surrender and a heart that leads to joyful and complete obedience. I'm mindful of the time here, but I want to drive the, uh, take us to the, to the third and final point of application. Not only is it an invitation this morning as we consider this God who has no rivals to savor his greatness and also settle for nothing but a heart of surrender and obedience, but thirdly, 
It's an opportunity to speak the name of Jesus with unashamed boldness. Look back at uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. This was the key verse that we started with. Moses is before Pharaoh, and the message that he's bringing on behalf of God is God saying this. He says, however, I've let you live, Pharaoh, for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. The whole reason why God is continuing to do these things and showing mercy upon Pharaoh is because he's trying to make his name known. He's trying to convince and show the world the greatness of who he is. And here's where it matters for us. That when we encounter God's greatness, when we're transformed by God's greatness, when that begins to overwhelm us as well in a good way, it leads us to step out in boldness. God invites us to join him in that mission of making his name known on the whole earth. That's why we're still here. That's why God has not taken us into heaven yet because he's inviting us to be a part of that mission here in Burlington, in Japan, and throughout the whole world. And we're invited to speak that name with boldness. I was reading yesterday Mark chapter 5, and there's this incredible miracle where there's this guy who's been demon-possessed, this unclean spirit that's overwhelmed him, and people are afraid of him, they can't do anything about him, and, he, and Jesus shows up on the scene and he sets him free, delivers him in a moment. It's this incredible story of life transformation the freedom that Jesus can bring. And it says that the man wanted to stay with Jesus, but Jesus says in Mark 5, 9, he says, no, go home to your people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you. That's what I want. Go home and and tell the people how much the Lord has done for you. When we encounter God's greatness, we're not to keep it to ourselves. God sends us out to our homes, to our neighbors, to our workplaces to tell the people all that God has done for you. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to the Father who's in heaven. And Paul writes in Ephesians 6.20, pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. And God calling us this morning to be people who step out and speak the name of Jesus with unashamed boldness. Who can we speak of today? I want to invite the worship team to come forward, and, and, I, and I invite you to just kind of stay here in the moment because um, we're not quite done yet. But, um, you know, the, the nine plagues, <laughs> and there's one more to come, by the way, and, and it's going to be amazing. But these nine plagues make a clear statement about who God is. There is no one like God. He is a God who has no rivals. None can compare or compete with the greatness of his name and his power throughout the earth. And whether it's through the plague of flies or hail or locusts or darkness or whatever else God brings, that much is clear. God is greater. But here's where I want to challenge us as we close this morning. As amazing as those nine plagues were, I think there's something even more significant that demonstrates the greatness of God's power overall. And that should motivate us to step out with boldness. And what is that? It's the empty tomb. It's the resurrection. 
See, the greatest rival we've ever faced is, is sin and death, right? That's the thing that ultimately stands in our way between us and God. And God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life for us, to go to the cross, to die the death that we deserved. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And he died and he shed his blood and he, his body hung on the tree and they, they took him down and they placed him in the grave and, and the enemy thought he had won. But then what happened? Three days later, the women went to that tomb to go see the body and it wasn't there. Why? Because Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus had conquered death and the grave. And, and it's, it's incredible to think about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that now lives within us through the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, if you want to savor the greatness of God, if you want to stop and stare at the wonder of who God is, the empty tomb is a really good place to start because it demonstrates the amazing, awesome things that God has done. And when God, through the Holy Spirit, shows you that, it will transform you. It'll make you a different person. And it will cause you to joyfully bend your knee and surrender to God and say, I'm yours. The life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And it will motivate us to step out and to speak the name of Jesus with boldness. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Our God reigns. There is no one who's greater. God has no rivals. And even the things that we face in our life, even today, God is greater than that. And so, would you stand with me as we pray? I just want to pray into that this, this morning, an opportunity to respond to that. God, we declare what your word says, that there is no greater name than the name of Jesus. There is, you are the name above all names. There's no, under, no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And God, you have no rivals. You have proven that. And you've proven that ultimately through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I thank you this morning for the life and freedom that that brings to all of us. And I pray today, God, that there would be no rivals in our hearts, that the Lord, you would have your rightful place for each person here this morning, including myself. That Jesus, you would demonstrate your greatness and your power and your glory over all. And that God, it would motivate us to get out into the world, out into our neighborhoods, out into our workplaces and speak the name of Jesus. God, our world desperately needs Jesus right now. It needs hope. Hope is found in Jesus. Purpose is found in Jesus. Joy is found in Jesus. Freedom is found in Jesus. Help us, God, to speak the name of Jesus over every area of our lives that you would be exalted and have the glory that is yours. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's respond together.